0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org.
1: Samana Phala Sutta. The word phala means fruit. And fruit is a, a very important word in the Buddhist lexicon because um, uh, the results of practice are, are, are often called fruit and um and it's a very it's a, uh and so when people describe the results of for example awakening they divide it often between uh the maga and phala Maga means the path and phala means the fruits of the path and there's it's, it's a very rich uh very rich concept that's uh, has many different meanings in the tradition but phala in particular the fruit of practice and so here the word fruit is being used and this is the fruit of the renunciant life. And um, uh, it might be nice, as another introduction to the text, to just uh, go over the summary in the front of the sheet of uh, the, f- the particular fruits that are mentioned in the text. So the Buddha is going to tell the, the king about that. the fruits, the benefits that come from the renunciant life. And uh, the ones in bold... Are the ones that the Buddha specifically says these are the fruits of the renunciant life. The ones that are not bolded are, are not are, uh, the benefits are mentioned, but they're not bench- mentioned specifically as fruits. Uh, just minor detail. So first, by becoming a monk, a slave is emancipated and honored. So if, you're, if you if you happen to be a slave, that would be a benefit if you became a monastic or a renunciant. If you're a tax-paying worker if you become a monk or monastic uh then you'd be freed from having to work and you wouldn't have to pay taxes anymore and you'd also be honored so that's some people would like that that's a benefit that comes from that life then if you live virtuously uh you have the happiness of blamelessness which i think for the uninitiated for people who are unfamiliar with this concept That might not seem like a big deal. When I first came across it in Buddhism, I just glazed over and kept reading. But uh, I've come to really appreciate uh, how wonderful and significant um, uh, being blameless is, to have a heart that's at ease um, uh, with itself. It doesn't feel like it's done anything that anyone would blame you for. It isn't so much that uh, we're caught up and concerned about the blame as we are concerned about not doing the things, not having done the things that others could blame us for. You know the whole days. Um, then the happiness of blamelessness from guarding the sense faculties, uh, accomplishment in mindfulness and clear awareness to have some degree of accomplishment there. contentedness to being content, having a clear, bright, purified awareness that per- permeating the body, as, as, uh, uh, attaining degrees of insight is another fruit. And then next three, uh, or next four, have to do with what's sometimes called um, idis or siddhis, or kind of uh, heightened higher knowledges, higher powers that uh, they say sometimes can come with meditation. One is called uh, being able to make a mind-made body. Other higher powers, clearer audience, being able to hear uh, voices far away or hear the, the gods, devas, talking. Um, and an understanding uh other people's states of mind, and then recollecting one's past lives, seeing how beings die and get reborn, and then the final one, eliminating the taints. Eliminating the taints is the ultimate fruit in Buddhism because that's synonymous with full awakening. It's uh, synonymous with becoming an arhat or a Buddha. Or a Buddha. And so um, uh, these are the kind of very deeply rooted defilements or, or attachments in the mind. That a person becomes freed freed from as they get fully awakened. So, those are the fruits. And so, uh, central to this text is going over these, is uh, enumerating these fruits, describing it in a progressive way that maybe could be seen as a guided meditation. Um, Now, the question that the king asks is what are the fruits here and now? What are the The fruits fruits in this lifetime? Uh, someone might say, what are the fruits of a religious life in the next lifetime? And there are plenty of Buddhists and other people who are interested in the practices that would help them in the future lifetimes. But that's not the question that's being asked here. And I would like to see it significant. Again, this is a reader response way of reading the text. I would like to see it significant that this, this very important discourse, the second discourse in this uh, collection of Buddhist discourses, um, is a discourse which doesn't, talk, doesn't really put central uh, focus on the idea of fruits of practice in, uh, over many lifetimes or other lifetimes, or it even doesn't even talk about the fruit of, fruit of the practice from the point of view of ending the cycle of rebirth, which is sometimes seen as being central to the Buddhist enterprise. Um, it doesn't come up here that you're trying to end rebirth. It rather talks about something that's immediately available here, which uh, claims including removing of the taints. Um, So, um, 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 it's also significant that what's being described here is the fruits of actions, behavior that you engage in, that the the person can actually do, that um, your actions have consequences, and your actions can have particular consequences that you have some control over the direction they have. You can choose uh, to have certain results from your own activity and action. It might seem very obvious to us that that's something we could do, you know, that uh, we all live lives that are consequential. We know we can make a difference in the choices we make. But uh, this needs to be highlighted that here what the Buddha's uh, offering is uh, teaching based on the assumption that an individual can make choices about how one acts, how one behaves, what does with one's mind. And that those choices can make a difference and can lead to certain beneficial results. And all these results here are a list of the beneficial results that are possible and that the individual has some choice over, at least directing oneself towards. Whether you're successful in actually making them is another question, but uh, you can't uh, expect to kind of move in some of these deeper directions without having made certain choices in, in, uh, in your life. So the exercise of free will, in a sense, not exactly a Buddhist word. Is very important Uh, that there's we have we have this free will to make choices for our actions, and we can choose things that are beneficial for us. This this, uh, making this point is very important because uh, the first half of the discourse, uh, the the king um, uh, reports to the Buddha the conversations he had with six other ascetic teachers who have different teachings, and and, you know, again, this is a place where it's easy to glaze over and fall asleep when you go through the list of those teachings. And you wonder, why is this here? And how does this fit in, uh, these aesthetic teachings? But if you kind of begin, I think it's possible to kind of look at the overall, what's overall going on in the discourse to understand why these teachings are presented where they are and how they fit in with uh, the narrative and what's happening. So we'll go to that in a minute. <coughs> I wanted to... uh point out to you some Pali words. If you're going to go into this world of the discourses more, uh, it's good to kind of begin learning some Pali. Even just individual words, recognize them. So for example, um, the king's name uh, or is usually Ajata Ajata Satu. And the A often, as a prefix, means not or un. And Jatu uh, or Jata Uh, It should be an A. It's a typo there. Jatta. Jata means born, and so you know that some of you know that word from another place. Jataka. The Jataka tales means the birth tales. Uh, So Jata here means birth, and Satu means enemy. So um, there are two uh, explanations of how these words, what they mean. So they're they're not not a given name. They're a title that the king is given. And the one understanding of it means that the, um, the king, uh, there, there, um, uh, uh, there is no enemies born for the king. The king has, has no, there's no, uh, nobody can be an enemy to this king. There's no, any enemies are unborn at this point. That's one meaning. Um, the other meaning is that the enemy of the king is not yet born, but will be born. And um, and uh, what uh, the t- how the tradition remembers this story of the king, is that he killed his father, only to be killed by his son. So, you know, his son is refers to his son who's going to kill him. Um, and. Um, so I talked about deva, the last of here. So we'll see some of the other words as we go through. So uh, if you look then on the back page, the six ascetics. <coughs> and these six ascetics can be divided into four classes or four kind of yeah, classes of philosophy or teachings that were current in the time of the Buddha. There are the people who are called the materialists. And there are the Ajivakas, the Jains, and the Skeptics. Mm-hmm. Sorry. If I can turn it off now. My son is here.
2: Um,
1: and um, So... I'm going to. Why don't you put the paper down so you're not distracted? I'm going to do my best, which can't be very good, because I I don't. I I, I don't uh, know enough about this early Indian religious tradition to really. But I'll do my best to try to explain a little bit the context of the times philosophically. Um. there were two currents the popular popular scholarly view is that in ancient India there were two primary currents of religious teachings there was that current that came with the Aryan invaders the the word Aryan is very important in ancient India Um, the the Four Noble Truths is called the the Aryan Truths And uh, it's very unfortunate that the Germans, t- uh, Hitler, took that word and adopted it for themselves. And now we don't want to get close to the word anymore. A lot of us don't want to get close to the word. Um, and uh, it has very strong associations. But that was the wor- word that uh, in ancient India for these invaders who came in. And they became kind of the ruling class, the warrior class uh, of ancient India. Um, and with them came, um, or, or you know, just like four or five thousand years ago, came the Vedas, the Vedic tradition particular uh, texts. And then with them also then with time came, developed the Brahmanical class of the Brahmins. And so that the Vedas, the Brahmins, uh, all kind of arose out of this kind of invader, invader culture came into India. The other current, they think, is the native indigenous religions of the time that had a, probably was many diverse kinds, India is a very big country, but there was a strong, uh, seemingly ascetic or meditation or practice kind of tradition that also existed, uh, kind of on the margins of society, perhaps. And, um, and so these two traditions kind of were rubbing up against each other, the Brahmanical uh, with high priests and a lot of rituals, and then there was this tradition of these ascetics. Uh, and so the ascetic tradition were those people who stepped outside of society and the structures of society to live in its margins. And, uh, and they were kind of trying to engage in, other, in religious life in a different way than what the, the Vedas and the Brahmanical tradition did. The Brahmanical tradition and the Vedas, to be simplistic about it, um, believed in a lot of gods. And that the way that you kind of got anything, and the gods were kind of like the Greek gods. Remember that the Indo European, these, these wonderful people who left the steppes of Russia some 5,000 years ago, Spread out into India and into Europe and into Greece and Rome and all that, and so they all kind of have common roots, the Indo-European roots. So we have common uh, source of our language too. Sanskrit and Indian, most like Sanskrit kind of based Indian languages have the same origin as uh, English and German and Italian. And you find similar words, um, and some words are really important in society and actually don't change. Have never ch- don't didn't change from ancient times. And you see it because they, all these languages have the same word, almost the same word for soup. Like, the, what, what, do you think this, what do you think the um, Pali word for soup is? Supa. <laughs> and um, so uh, that's a little way of pointing out some some of the religious ideas are similar as well. And so um, I think it's probably fair enough to say that the pantheon of Vedic gods maybe looked a little bit like um, the Greek gods. Um, and so, anyway, there was this pantheon of gods, and uh, and the way that you succeeded in life, the way your crops would grow, and live to old age, and all that, is you would make offerings to the gods. And uh, the in a, in primary causal kind of world that you really it was really consequential, that really meaningful was to make these sacrifices. And um, and then there was a class of, of priests who were really the officiants for those sacrifices. Uh, coming out of that tradition then developed this idea that uh, not only was there there many gods but also there was one central god or unified god or something who at the beginning of time or the first god who uh, in part of the genesis of creation of the universe divided up his body into different parts and those different parts became the different classes of people and so the uh, brahmins were made from his head I think it was and uh, the warriors, maybe from the arms, I forget exactly how it goes. The, the, um, so the warrior, the working class or the merchant class, whatever, the, um, are made from maybe, I don't know what, the arms or the torso or something. But the uh, underclass, uh, the untouchables class, are, are, uh, were somehow uh, made from his feet. And uh, even to this day, you find uh, uh, Indian society very stratified with a lot of hierarchy, and the feet are considered to be much lower than the head. And so you never want to touch, in some Christian countries, you, you know, unless you're very careful about touching someone's head because it's the highest, most respectful part of their body. And it can be very insulting to touch someone's head if you, know, if you casually do it. Whereas in our culture, maybe it's an infection thing to do. And the last thing you want to do is to point your feet at a dharma teacher, no, oh, thank you. <laughs> because uh, you're pointing your most disrespectful part of your body towards something that's considered very respectful, it's very, you know, it's considered very bad. And if you really want to show a lot of respect to someone, you would lower your head, which is your highest place, to that person's lowest place, the feet. And so you could put down your bow, bow, put your head on someone's feet it's really showing a very dramatic you know, hierarchical difference in respect to whatever. So to say that the untouchables came from the feet um, is to really say that they're pretty untouchable, right? They're like the lowest, <coughs> baddest part. So, um, and so with that came the idea that, that our society uh, was stratified when people are born into their caste. And so there's a fixed order to life. And once you're born into that caste, you can't do anything to get out of it. You're stuck in that caste. And that's the nature of the universe. That's the order of the universe. It's a fixed way the universe is, that you're that way now. So these two things um, suggest uh, some things about causality. The first is that if you really want to do serious, have a serious impact on the world, you can't do it. But rather you have to rely on these gods to do it and please the gods. And there are some things which are have to do with inherent in the nature of the universe that you can't change at all. It just predetermined. It sticks. This is the way it is. You're born into a caste, and that's you can't get out. And you can't have to. And you have to relate. You have, and you have duties. And the word, is the word dharma, also means duty. And so uh, the dharma of the duty of these different castes is to behave a certain way, relate to other castes in a certain way. <coughs> and so. So, that's a certain kind of understanding of causality uh, so uh, there were people then who started questioning all this and how it all worked and one of the one of the places they questioned it was the Upanishads, the literature that came after the vedas and one of the early upanishads that came probably a little bit before the Buddha uh, started positing the idea that uh, Uh, They didn't deny the gods, but said, well, actually, there's something else, some kind of unified principle, some kind of unified being, some kind of unified god called Brahma. And that uh, comes from the beginning of time, is timeless. And that another thing which is also timeless is the the soul. And each person has a soul called the Atman, Atta. And that there's a unity of the Atman and the Brahma. There's a unity of the microcosm and the macrocosm. There's a unity of the ultimate and the particular. Who you are, they're, not, they're one and the same. To realize that sameness um, is to become liberated or free or something. And what it meant was somehow a radical separation from the ver- word world of diversity, the world of difference. And um, and uh, in some at least in some forms of Indian religion, this kind of attitude of the oneness of Brahma and Atman of soul. Uh, meant uh, that you kind of pulled yourself away, pulled consciousness away from this world that we live in, and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, to realize this profound experience of oneness of these things. But it became, uh, and part of this pulling away was a dismissing of the phenomenal world, and uh, and so you see in some of these traditions that do this, that the phenomenal world that we live in is called a dream, Maya. It's just all—it's all an illusion. It's all—we delu- uh, live in an illusion. The only thing is real is when we kind of pull the consciousness away from all that this here and and drop into this kind of uh, this kind of blissful state, um, and uh, this kind of blissful union of the two is some, sometimes uh, called Sat Chit Ananda. Uh, sat means truth, Chit means mind, consciousness, and nanda means bliss. So, so. Again, so what's the, what, what does it teach us about the world of causality? <coughs> the world of causality is, a delu- is an illusion. And the idea is not to understand anything about causality, but to somehow step out of it and realize this deep place of oneness that somehow that you're supposed to be able to experience. <coughs> um, so, So in this mix, then, there were all these other ascetic traditions, people that stepped out of society, who were also grappling or trying to understand um, a variety of things, including the issue of causality. So if you look here <coughs> in the text under, um, let's see, I'll read it to you for those, you know, you, you, those of you who don't have the text. So in, in Walsh's translation, it's um, page 97. Those of you who have Tanjeff, it's, I don't know what he calls it. He calls it skeptic? Uh, or the, No, no, the uh, evasive? I think it's the... the, the evasiveness it's uh, the the teachings of sanjaya <coughs> sorry evasion. evasion and so these are the teachings of sanjaya if you ask me is there another world if i thought if i thought so i would say so but i don't think so i don't say it is so and i don't say otherwise so I don't know if that's evasive. Sometimes they call it a skeptic. It means he's not going to have a view. He doesn't have a view. He doesn't know. Okay? How can you know these things? So is there another world? Is there, but What it means is not so much is there like another planet someplace. What it means is, uh, I think what it means is that is there a future lifetime? Will you be reborn again into another world? into another? And okay? um, um, a little bit further on, is there fruit and the result of good and bad deeds? So here it has to do with causality. Can you do deeds? Can you distinguish between good deeds and bad deeds? And are the results of those deeds? Well, how does causality work? Can you can you be involved in the causal world? Um, and then he asks. Uh, then he refers to um, does an enlightened person, a Tathagata, the word tagata is often a title for the Buddha, but probably it was a pre-Buddhist term for someone who was liberated does the person exist after death? What happens to a person when they get liberated? And as in for a culture that maybe believes in rebirth, um, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I thought there were four things here. So is there another world? Isn't there another world? Is the fruit of good and bad actions? Does it kind of exist? Anyway, that's all I see here. Those three major categories. And... Um, so you see, the, second one, so the uh, second one in particular has to do with causality. You know, so this was a, a, an issue they're grappling with. And this particular guy ha- has no view, doesn't have a conclusion about that. So a skeptic, he's just evasive. He does, his kind of specialty is not having views, not holding on to any, any view at all, and just kind of you know, pulling back from it all. So I, I, I quote this to show that these kinds of questions were they were grappling with at the time. So um, these different aesthetics grappled with these questions in different ways. And we'll go, I'll go over this a little bit, these different uh, approaches that they had. But it's one thing to try to understand these philosophies by reading these texts and try to understand what they are. And it's interesting to do that. And one of the historically why it's interesting is that most certainly these were historical people. And this is the earliest record we have of these philosophers, this text. So historically you can't go further back than this. And there's other t- things that were written in India after that that also purports to be their teachings. So we have other records as well to compare it to. But historically this is the earliest. You have to be skeptical skeptical when you read it because um, uh, you know here's it the Buddhists are talking about the other people, you know straw straw man. And so you know, it might not be completely accurate how you depict your in your you know your other but there's another way of reading this. It's so not just reading the philosophy, what's this guy's about, but to read it in the context of this narrative that we went over this morning. Okay. Apparently, the king is troubled man. Troubled because he killed his father. He wants some peace. So, imagine, you know, you're troubled, deeply troubled, and uh, you just killed your father. And, you know, please don't. But... um and you go, you go to someone and you're looking for some kind of solace or some kind of help. And so um, the person says to you, um, so this is um, page 94 of Walshi. This is the teachings of Purana Kasapa. So remember, Tanjef will have a different slightly different translation of words so. It confuses you if I read one and you have the other, it, you know. Um, so Parana's teachings are, um, Your Majesty, by the doer or instigator of a thing, by one who cuts or causes to be cut, by one who burns or causes to be burnt, by one who causes grief and weariness, by one who agitates or causes agitation, who causes life to be taken, or that which is not given to be taken commits burglary, carries off booty, commits robbery, lies in ambush, commits adultery, and tells lies. No evil is done. If with a razor... Remember, you've killed your father, right? You're hearing this. If with a razor-sharp wheel one were to make of this earth one single mass and heap of flesh, if there would be no evil as a result of that, no evil would accrue. If one were to go along the south bank of the Ganges, killing, slaying, cutting, or causing to be cut, burning, or causing to be burnt, there would be no evil as a result of that. No evil would accrue. Or if one were to go along the north bank of the Ganges, giving and causing to be given, sacrificing and causing to be sacrificed, there would be no merit as a result of that. No merit would accrue. In giving, self-control and abstinence and telling the truth, there is no merit and no merit accrues. So you killed your father, right? And you're looking for some help. Would this be helpful? (laughs) Wow, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm scot free, you know. But that, you know, I was worried about what I did, you know, and I realize now that there's no problems at all. You know, you can kill people, it doesn't matter, and no consequence, you know, of any import, no merit. Whew. <laughs> well, that, you know, maybe if you kind of, you know, maybe if you did something minor, like maybe you stole a bubble gum from the local store. I don't know if that's Maybe you hear this. Maybe you'd kind of like, oh, okay. But something major like killing a father, your heart—you know, no, you know, no matter what the teachings are, I think that the heart is broken. I would hope. I would think. Would this kind of teaching be helpful? I suppose that's a rhetorical question because I'm implying what the answer should be. Um, so, you know, the king is asking for something, and this is the answer he gets. And the, and the relationship to someone who had done such a big crime, I, don't, I think that this doesn't cry, would probably not really work. So, if you're trying to read this from the point of view of understanding the philosophy behind it, that's one perspective. If you're trying to read it from the perspective of the king, of how he's going to hear it, that's a different perspective. So, so here. Um, so, Parana Kasapa is one of the materialists in the materialist school. And they're called materialists. I don't know if it's a fair word, but it's what's commonly referred to in modern scholarship. Is those who believe that um, that there is no uh, rebirth, that this is the only life you have, and so um, materialist in that sense. And then there were different schools of materialists, and this one, is, uh, this school, is that uh, it's called the teaching of non-action. That our actions, uh, there is, you know, there's no, there's no action that has any consequence. You can do something, but there's no doer, there's no person being done to. Uh, it's all kind of empty or meaningless or, or something, and and, uh, and certainly has no consequences. And and uh, when you die, it all go, disappears anyway. You know, it's just yeah, here you are, and you know, so you might as well over, you're on your deathbed, and you might as well overcharge your credit card because, you know, it doesn't matter to anybody. It's no, no consequence, no meaning, nothing. Um it seems like a bit of extreme kind of teaching, but uh, probably you don't have to look very far to find, and even in the modern world, there are people who or recent world times will hold similar kind of ideas, kind of negate everything, um, that there's nothing. There's nothing here, there's no consequence, no meaning to anything. everything's empty. Uh, you found uh, only uh, you find certainly in Japan, uh, Zen teachers and occasionally, and uh, who have kind of a samurai ethic, they say, you know, there's actually have said, there's no killer, there's no one killed, uh, it's all empty. And uh, as a samurai, which your duty to kill, you should kill, knowing there's no one there. Now they might have a little different philosophical background than this, but it seems somewhat similar, right? Um, so that's so. So this guy, uh, um, Purana, was grappling with. Uh, it's issues of causality and rebirth and our role and, yes? In this context, is there a difference between nihilism and what's labeled your materialism? Yes. Um, um, uh, usually the uh, Ajita, Kesa Kambali, his teaching is called teaching of annihilationism, which is more nihilism, but it could, it could be the same, I suppose. <coughs> Um, so that was one school of ascetics. Now, something meant something for the ascetics because uh, they were ascetics. They were these renunciant types. They'd stepped out of society and they were living a lifestyle of uh, wandering alms people, going for alms. And so there were certain rules or behavior that they followed. Um, but, uh, but exactly what the parameters of that was quite uh, um, uh, wide. Because uh, at least from the point of view of the Buddhist texts, they refer to some of the ascetics as living a, quite a wide diversity of lifestyles, and uh, there were some who were celibate, and some who were clearly not celibate. There were some who wandered around with their uh, partners of opposite gender or groups of people, and they were. It says in the text that they were uh, quite happy for the fond uh, for the tender touch of their female companions, whatever that meant. Um, and so there was, you know, so people were living many different ways, but still they were wondering ascetics, or wondering renunciance is a better word. Um, so then we come to, um, uh, if we go to Ajita, which is, um, so this is a very, again, okay, Purana, if I may. It a, you know, it's a very radical in the context of the other teachings of the time. The teaching of the time being that um, um, uh, there is this uh, class distinction, and you're supposed to follow certain rules and they're meaningful and you have to live that way. The distinction of um, there are these gods you have to kind of relate to and your actions and sacrifices are consequential to them, um, that's all undercut. And so perhaps that's one of the reasons why they had to be renunciants, because if you undercut and don't participate in how society usually uh, operates, then you um, you uh, you know you have to live outside of it. Uh, so Ajita is uh, bottom of page 94, 95 here, page 39 of your book, and um, Ajita's teachings. is is significant for the Buddha's teachings because there are a number of places in the suttas where the following passage is quoted verbatim as being the definition of wrong view. There is nothing given, bestowed, offered, and sacrificed. There is no fruit or the result of good and bad bad actions. There is not this world or the next, There is no mother or father, there is no spontaneously arisen beings. There are in the world no ascetics or Brahmins who have attained anything, who have perfectly practiced to proclaim this world and the next, having realized them by their own super knowledge. This human being is composed of four great elements, and when one dies, the earth part reverts to the earth, the water part to water, the fire part to fire, the air part to air, and the faculties, uh, faculties, I think there is jiva. So Jiva is kind of like the the, the whatever kind of life forces pass away into space. They accompany the dead man with four bearers, and the buyer is as fifth. Their footsteps are heard as far as the cremation ground. There the bones whiten, the sacrifice ends in ashes. It is the idea of a fool to give this gift. The talk of those who preach a doctrine of survival is vain and false. Fools and wise at the breaking up of the body are destroyed and perish; they do not exist after death. <clears throat> so, there are people, for example, in the modern world who do not believe in rebirth, and I'm one of them. Just to kind of you know, and um, but it's a you know that's a <clears throat> dangerous belief from a point of view of Buddhist classic Buddhism, because um, then why not? To overcharge your credit card as you on your deathbed, you know who cares you know there's no consequence for you you know no if you're going to be reborn, then you better be careful with your karma right and be, make sure you do behave in such a way that you get reborn nicely, but if you don't believe in rebirth, then what keeps you from being immoral you know so you know what keeps me I mean, you should watch out for me be careful with me you know, i don't i don't believe in rebirth you know you know I, well I will do anything to you I know well I mean, it doesn't matter to me what I do, so might as well just So, watch out. (coughs) Um, And um, so, this is a negation, radical negation of of rebirth, radical negation of action, and also of certain concepts that are very important. These don't exist, they have no value, and there's no causality here at all. So, this is often called annihilationism, one of the extreme views the Buddha was very critical of. All this. Yes?
2: just seems fun to note from the annotation that says this guy was in, nicknamed Ajita of the hairy garment because he wore cloak
1: of human hair. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I guess it's human hair, Kesa. And um, and so this this, uh, this refers to the fact that he's an ascetic. So uh, an ascetic wears that kind of outfit. And, um, oh, oh, because of his own hair? Or well, it might be, it might just have very long hair. That could be it. I don't know what it means myself. Or it could be that he has a blanket or something that's been uh, woven together from hair. And so that's. um, uh, Anyway, so he's living an ascetic life. (coughs) And. Yes? You
0: say you don't believe in rebirth. You believe in birth.
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, What would it mean to believe in it? I've seen it. I've been there when my sons were born. But this is not the time for that, So, so, um, the next one is, uh, materialist is, uh, oh, so again, from the point of view of the king, given his crime, how would this teaching work? You know, it could be that it feels like, again, he's been liberated. There's no consequence. I, what I did was fine. But I believe that when you perform such a big crime as killing a father, that logic, some logical teachings, that, oh, there's no problems at all. and It's all empty and nothing exists and no consequence at all, really. It, it, that doesn't really speak to that part of the emotional part of the heart, the deep part of the heart, that I think is not logical. It's not, you know... It's not going to provide peace or solace. It's not going to have meaning. It's going to feel quite empty, and empty or vain or something. That's my belief. I don't know how it is for you. Uh, so, uh, Pakuda. So where's Pakuda? Pakuda is uh, page ninety-six. It's <clears throat> the next one after Ajita. Your Majesty, these seven things are not made of, made or, are not made, and of a kind to be made, uncreated, unproductive, barren, fall, stable as a column. They do not shake, do not change, obstruct one another, nor are they able to cause one another pleasure, pain or both. What are the seven? The earth body, the water body, the fire body, the air body, pleasure and pain, and life principle. So he's saying that these are the only things that are real in terms of fundamental real things in this universe, these are the only things. The water body or the water element, uh, pleasure and pain, and the life principle, jiva. These seven are not made. Thus, there is neither slain nor slayer, neither hearer nor proclaimer, neither knower nor causer of knowing. And whoever cuts off a man's head with a sharp sword does not deprive anyone of life, he just inserts a blade in the intervening space between these seven bodies. So, the, you know, a human being is just kind of an illusion again. Not really, it's, not hu- really, it's not really, really a human being here. It's just a particular combination of these permanent, permanently abiding, eternal elements that have always been, always will be. The only thing that's real. The only thing that's important. And when you slice off my head, you don't, do anything to those kind of, those eternal, permanent things. And so there's nothing killed, no problem at all. Um, so here, are people again, trying to grapple, trying to figure out what is the nature of this world we live in. And um, and uh, here there, here we have someone pointing to some kind of idea of an eternal soul or life principle. It doesn't use the word atman, but it's kind of, kind of get close to that. and um, And it's untouchable. So you don't have to worry about killing anyone because the person has nothing really to do with that life principle. And, um, and so this has a very direct Im- uh, impact back on these earlier beliefs, the Vedic ideas of the gods, you know, relating to the gods and sacrificing for them, or also relates to the idea of these, uh, the duty, the dharma you have because of belonging to different castes. It kind of negates all that. And perhaps part of the power of these kinds of teachings is that people who felt uh, trapped or felt reactive Mm -hmm. to the fixed ideas of the time, which were very limiting for people. And so this is kind of radical, pulls the rug from underneath the established beliefs of the popular culture of the time. Um, So then can I go on or is this getting tiring to do this way? You're with me, okay? So, then the are Ajibakas, and this is um, Makali Gosala. And it seems that the founder of Jainism and uh, was a, was a um, colleague of Makali, they kind of worked in cahoots for a while, and then they split off from each other. And, uh, and the Jain tradition itself refers to this fact. And so we have the Jain's preserve teachings from Makali. And apparently, from what I've read, that the Jain view of Macaulay's teachings is very similar to the Buddhist view. So there might be some accuracy in this depiction. So Macaulay is um, ninety-four, page 94. And maybe I won't read all of it, but I'll skip, skip part of it. Your Majesty, there is no cause or condition for the defilement of beings. They are defiled without cause or condition. So there is defilement. He doesn't want to negate defilement. But there's no cause to why you're so messed up. You're just a mess. It's
2: original
1: sin? Original sin, whatever. you know. But uh, there, I mean, that original sin at least has a cause. You know, The Bible tells us. But here it says no cause. Without cause or condition. There's no <laughs> cause and condition for the purification of beings. So this is hopeful. You're not stuck being defiled. There is purification, but you can't do anything about it, because there's no cause or condition for becoming purified. Beings are purified without cause or condition. So some people get purified, but there's no cause and condition for why they get purified. So therefore, there's no self power or other power. You can't do anything for yourself. You can't purify yourself. Nothing you can do for yourself that can help. And no one can do it for you. There's no power in humans, no strength or force, no vigor or exertion. All beings, all living beings, all creatures, all that live is without control, without power or strength. They experience the fixed course of pleasure and pain through the six kinds of rebirth. So here we're talking about rebirth. So this guy believes in rebirth, believes there's cycles of birth and death, but you have no impact on it, no influence on it whatsoever. In other words, everything follows its own course. And um, now it could be said it's all just random and chance what happens, but according to his teaching, it's not random and chance. It's predetermined at the uh, at the outset of the universe. The good. <clears throat> um, and then he goes on, all, there are 1,400,000 principal sorts of birth. I'd like to see him list them. Mm-hmm. 6,000 others, and again 600. There are 500 kinds of karma, and then on and on. 62 paths, 62 intermediary intermediate eons, 6 class of humankind, 8 stages of human progress. So he's really into classifying things. And recognizing what's there. Um, even though you can have no impact, he, he seems important to understand all these distinctions. If you really j- jump down to the next paragraph, therefore, there's no such thing as saying, by this, this discipline or practice or austerity or holy life, I will bring my unripened karma to fruition, or I will gradually make this ripened karma go away. Neither of these things is possible because pleasure and pain have been measured out with a measure limited by the round of birth and death. And there is neither increase nor decrease, neither excellence nor inferiority. Just as a ball of string, when thrown, runs till it is all unraveled, so fools and wise run on and circle round till they make an end to suffering. So it's a very hopeful teaching. It just means, wait. And your defilement, your suffering will play itself out And you just have to wait out. And you don't know. I mean, we don't know different people. I mean, maybe you're almost at the end of your string. Maybe just one more lifetime or tomorrow. Or it could be, you know, one of these, you know, there's all these eons he talks about. It could be, you know, several thousand eons away before you run it out. But, you know, it's hopeful, right? Sooner or later. Isn't that nice? So... So this is a person who who, is not called a materialist because he does believe in rebirth and in other lifetimes he believes in all these different realms of beings and you get born up and down different realms and all that. But it's not your action that causes you to get reborn, not your action that causes anything. Your actions have no meaning in this whole scheme of universe. It's just the universe playing itself out because it's all predetermined, it's all set in motion and the, the motion has to unwind by itself. That's his teaching. Now, remember, he was a colleague of the Jain founder. And the Jains have a similar teaching, but a little bit different. And the the Jain teaching is not really depicted here very well in this text. So I'll tell you how the Jains are. They also believed that um, that, uh, the momentum of defilement, momentum of your life, was set in motion at the beginning of the universe. But as you act, you affect Rather than use a ball of string, if you take a spring, the spring is either wound up or unwound. And how you act depends on how, whether you wound up the, the spring further or whether the spring unwinds. And, uh, <coughs> and, um, and so if you, if you kill someone, you're winding up the spring even more. You bring more tension in the spring. And it has more, takes more time then to unwind. If you do nothing whatsoever, then it slowly over time it will unwind. Like, this, like the first guy, Macaulay, said, just everything unwinds in its own time. But, if you, um, but you can speed it up. And one of the ways you speed it up is that um, you have to speed up your, the, the fruition of your karma. So if you've done something, or if you have some kind of karma or a certain kind of built-up tension in your spring... Um, you can do things that speed up the unwinding. So, um, and the best and the way to do that is to suffer. And the more you can suffer, the faster you're unwinding your karma. So, you know, if you did a really bad thing in past lifetime, you have to experience the karma of that, but you can speed it up by, you know, starving yourself. And you suffer a lot when you starve yourself. And so, that suffering Counts for unwinding your built-up karma. So the Jains were into asceticism and, and, and uh, you know, pain, painful asceticism. They were also into non-action. And the ideal uh, life of a, uh, a Jain monk is to uh, is non-action, doing very, very little. So you don't cause any more karma, and you want to be very careful not to create really bad karma. And so they were really into non-violence. And uh, one of the one of the early seeds for nonviolent ahimsa movement in India were these jains, because they were radically nonviolent violent dedicated to nonviolence and they would go around sweeping the ground before they walked to make sure they didn't step into any insects they would um, you know do all kinds of stuff they would uh, to avoid any kind of harm causing any kind of harm and they would um, 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 eat less and less and less and less not only to start to cause suffering to themselves but also to this non action and the ideal uh, giant saint was someone who um, exhausted his karma by starving to death that
0: just seems like the ultimate
1: hypocrisy hypocrisy yeah because? because they're dedicated to non-violence but they're being very violent towards themselves oh that way yeah Well, you know, they're just working out the karma quicker. And the Non-action, they're not doing anything to themselves. They're just letting the stuff kind of bubble up. It's like you have a sore, and sometimes you have, you know, you have a boil or something that's causing an infection, and uh, in order to make it uh, heal, you have to hurt yourself. You take a needle and poke it. It might take a while before you have the courage and the fortitude to push it, and maybe it hurts quite a bit to have it, but then it pops, and then it can heal. So they're just popping that karmic boil. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's the same uh, reason to explain why it might cause harm in the world, too. There could be reasons for causing harm that ultimately cause... Sort of, isn't that sort of the um, wage war? Isn't that often... <laughs>
1: Maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, the Jains, um, so the, I, it's probably not a bit, you know, this is my best attempt to try to explain Jainism. Please don't take my word, this is what it is. It's still a living religious tradition. It survived in India when Buddhism didn't, down to the present age. Um, and um, there there's some really beautiful Jains. I met a beautiful professor at UC Berkeley. He's retired now. His name is Jaini. Jaini. And,. Um, and he was a beautiful man, and he was a, happened to be a Buddhist scholar, studying Buddhism. But uh, he was a Jain, wrote a book on Jainism, beautiful man. Um, and so one of the teachings of, um, of the Jains is the teaching of, of restraint, restraining from action, from doing anything until you can exhaust all this stuff. The Buddha... Was was belonged to that class of people who were renunciants, and so these were his, you know, kind of his colleagues in the religious field, the religious world. And in terms of, uh, you know, so he was kind of also one of these people who was grappling trying to understand something about the nature of causality or was offering his teachings on causality in relation to these others. And so, his, 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 um, um, uh, you know, so the Buddha had this teaching where. Uh, he didn't put much emphasis on the gods. The idea of sacrificing the gods is not an important one for the Buddha. Uh, the gods, of anything, you feel sorry for when you're Buddhist. You know, they, they, they have a good life, but they're kind of not quite good to be a god. Um, and um, the idea of uh, Brahma-atman, that there's this kind of primordial soul and primordial kind of essence of the universe that it's, it gets unified, and you realize the unity of it, is seen as, in Buddhism as kind of a delusion. And that doesn't work, um, and for the Buddha. And, um, and then all these other teachings here don't work for the Buddha. So what the Buddha emphasized, and that, you know, it doesn't, that maybe doesn't seem so radical for us, but it was very radical if you belong to any of these other tradition. His emphasis was, there is causality, your actions can make a difference, the choices you make can make a difference. And there are particular evaluations that are useful to make. There's evaluation of skillful and unskillful, helpful and not helpful. There are certain goals which are useful to have. There is liberation, and that liberation doesn't require exhausting your karma, though you have to do some of that. You have to kind of work through some karma. But it's not a matter of kind of letting the balls roll out all the way, but you actually can bypass the the spring unwinding by deep concentration, deep insight but to understand something very deep and powerful. And But the way to do that is to kind of try to uh, change your state of your mind, to develop insight, <coughs> and you can make a difference. You can make a difference to how you get reborn, and so it's good to take some responsibility for that if you believe in such things, and, um, and that the, the Buddha like some of these traditions, saw it was important to somehow become liberated from the cycles of rebirth. But for him, that liberation was the same as liberation in this lifetime here from the taints, from the very forces that keep you bound to the cycles of of birth, uh, greed, hate, and delusion, or such things. Um, So in the context, so, so on one hand, from the point of view of the king, Maybe you can see the, you know, why this doesn't work for the king, the teaching of the six ascetics. From the point of view of the Buddha's teachings, these six uh, ascetic teachings is setting up a contrast between one form of teaching of causality and the Buddha's teaching of causality. And The Buddha's teaching of causality is not explicit <coughs> in the Samana Sutta, but um, it's implicit because he's talking about the fruit of action the fruit of certain behavior, the results, and he's talking about things that an individual can do, and then what you can do is meaningful and important. And then he lays out a course of practice, and that course of practice is laid out sequentially, and, uh, and uh, that sequence is uh, kind of presenting uh, a gradual growth, and then you have a gradual path of growth. The practice is a very important one for the Buddha. It's not just sudden enlightenment, but you're laying the foundation for the next stage and that stage lays a foundation for the next until eventually the mind is poised for a deep insight a deeper realization a deep awakening um, it also um, uh, so it's kind of stage, it's stage kind of oriented <coughs> it's also um, also what we have in this discourse is we have the Buddha laying out uh, the full kind of of fullness or many, many different aspects of his path. Are all these aspects needed for the path? The, the psychic experiences, psychic things, maybe aren't inherent in the path or necessary in the path, but here in the context of teaching to the king, he's just trying to kind of zap the king with all these great benefits, all these results that you can see if you do this. He's not saying you have to you have to experience and attain all these things sequentially. You have to have like a mind made body and you have to be able to clear audience and all those things. He just kind of—I think—just really trying to impress the king of a certain kind of thing. This, this, this could be there if you really did this well. Um, so then we go back to the narrative. <clears throat> the Buddha is at least seventy-five years old in this story, if the story is true. He's been teaching for thirty-five years or so. Thirty. 40, 40 years or something. 40 years he's been a teacher. And what I imagine, if someone like the Buddha has been teaching for 40 years, that he's developed his teaching over that time. That you don't just kind of get enlightened just like that, like the Buddha, and suddenly know everything that he's going to teach. But rather you start making the connections you understand, you systematize it over time, uh, you take out the implications. Uh, is isn't like he, you know the, the aspe- different aspects of it. And so by the time he was getting to be an old man, uh, he would spend a lot of time systematizing, arranging, putting together his teachings in particular ways. And he was coming to the end of his life. It was particularly important to kind of have it all kind of organized and systematized. He have an indication that, uh, little indication that there was self-conscious efforts by the early tradition, including the Buddha, to actually preserve the teachings in an organized way. And so this is perhaps by the end of his life, he pulled together all these different practices and stuff that had been given different people at different times, and put them together in a sequential way. understood understood them sequentially. Uh, yes.
0: Was there? Um, did, did they write? Were they literate?
1: Or uh, uh, were they were they were they write? Were they literate? No, this was a pre-literate culture. Oh. And so this was all done. Um, this was all done. Uh, uh, orally and through memorization.
0: The culture overall didn't have language, like there wasn't even, an, uh, or sorry, not uh, language, but an alphabet and ways to write down. Like I know they didn't write down the Buddha's discourses for a while, right. but they also, there just wasn't writing They weren't,
1: then. They, they weren't written down for 500 years, they say. Um, <clears throat> the scholars think that there was writing in India at that time, uh, but um, it was really, uh, 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 very few people did it. They were mostly merchants, accountants and people. So a little bit went on. Um, but most people weren't, weren't educated. And, and there's no evidence of the Buddhists uh, writing and using writing until about 500 years after the time of the Buddha. But it was a it was an oral culture. And as with many oral cultures in society, in history, uh, uh, people really, uh, when there weren't books to... People have to rely on their memory much more than we do, and the human brain has a phenomenal capacity for memorization that's mostly underutilized in the modern world. And so people would memorize, you know, long songs. By the time they were five years old, they would know, you know, all these chants and songs and all this stuff, you know, because that's all there was. And um, and also there were very uh, in the back from Vedic time, you know, four or five thousand years ago, there were um, a whole class of people, the Brahmins whose primary responsibility was to memorize these texts accurately. And there was a whole technology, uh, mental technology, for, for um, ensuring that the texts are memorized accurately. Um, and so the Buddhists stepped into, an, you know, Buddhism existed in an environment where accurate memorization of texts and organizing things orally and through memorization was a big part of the society already. To give you an example of uh, the care that's went to preserve the accuracy of these ancient texts like the Vedas, Uh, scholars uh, who've studied Vedic memorization as it's done in the the 20th century saw that there was one group of Brahmins whose job was to memorize the text from beginning to end. There was another group whose job, and the job, not just the the Brahmin, but uh, the Brahmin would pass it on to his son, who would pass it on to his son, to his son, this way of doing it. So one, one family was responsible. Many many families were responsible for memorizing front to back. Another family was mem- uh, responsible for memorizing uh, backwards. Another family was responsible for memorizing every other word. Another every fifth word. And then um, every ten years or something, they had these gatherings, and they'd compare notes. They'd recite it to each other and make sure that they all had it right. That's quite a big effort, isn't it? So that's been going on for thousands of years in India. As it was, so, we don't have any, we don't have evidence that the Buddhists were that careful, but they were. They were this was a culture that worked that way. Yes.
2: Yeah, I just had a, a question. When I read this the first time, um, with when he was, it kind of felt like he, uh, I was reading a little prince or something, like him going from place to place, and mm-hmm. and even in the annotations they talked about. Uh, uh that there were certain parodies happening a couple times, especially with the G- giant guy. Um, and uh, it seemed like there was some uh, there were characters being made or there was some playfulness and I'm just curious if uh, that's actually happening or if that was something that I was bringing into it. Almost maybe like they were making fun of certain types of people at
1: the time or something. It could be with the Giants. There's a word play that goes on with the giants that uh, I can't quite understand the word play. I haven't taken the time to really understand it but it has to do with the word vāri, which means both restraint and water. And, and so the giants went to restraint, and, uh, but then there's this play word with the play with water. And so maybe some of you have read it or studied it. I you know Diana was, knew about this ahead of time. Do you understand the word play? Yeah. Sometimes I water, I trying to Bonds, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, so there's a word play. So is it a pun? Is it meant to be satire, parody? Um, I don't know. I don't know about this one, but there are other uh, discourses where um, it seems pretty clear, at least to me, <laughs> to a few people, that uh, there's parody or satire involved here. They're making fun of people. Um,
2: yeah. I guess I just uh, what does that mean if there's like a Buddha sutta that's kind of like making fun of people, or you know, or straight from the
1: Buddha? Is it from the Buddha yeah. as is it later? Did or the Buddha have a sense of humor? Or did he? Was he had? A little, did he have a little edge? You know, that he was willing. Yeah. That's definitely something
2: I picked up on, and I think it's really interesting that their wisdom teachings and uh, the Theravadins do it to the, the Vedics and the Jains, and then if you read Mahayana texts, they do it to the Theravadins, much in the same way that uh, Christian people uh, might do it to Jewish uh, people, you know, the, over over time, and in the same way Muslim people do it to Christian and Jewish people, just the way that the the religions uh, evolved. They're constantly pointing out sort of the uh, obsolescence of like whatever was, whatever came before. It's really interesting.
0: Just to, to add to that, that, that maybe because they're differentiating themselves, I mean, each of these religions is kind of coming from the other and in order to actually make themselves different, there's the comparison and that's, I'm, I'm aware of that in Christianity with Judaism. That a lot of that is because they needed to show the differences? Yeah, yeah.
1: People often use a straw man, use use something the other to differentiate themselves, understand themselves better. <clears throat> and some of it has to do, I think, with the human um, uh, concern for identity. People really want to know who they are in opposition to others. And by, by knowing the other in opposition to them, you know who you are better, you form your own group more clearly. Um, and uh, so you see, I think you see the Buddhists doing that periodically. You also have teachings uh, from the Buddha elsewhere where the whole idea of being in dispute and being in opposition to other, teaching, other teachings is seen as being um, a waste of time. And so how do you exist without doing that, as also that, uh, pointed to in this early tradition, the earliest part of the tradition. So if this text is supposed to be taken as being accurate, and it depicts the Buddha near the end of his life, I think it's reasonable to think that the Buddha in his life you know, certainly had developed his teachings over t- quite a bit over the 40 years, that he was systematizing it, and he was concerned about passing it on that way. And so um, here we are. You know, it, it is, uh, and what you find in, in some of the last discourses, uh, the, uh, that in the long discourse of the Buddha, the first 13 texts in the te- Sutta, most of them uh, give the same course of practice. It's all laid out the same way or close to the same way, uh, as if this is really important for the tradition to kind of re-emphasize this over and over again, these stages of practice. Um, so then, um, <coughs> uh, the stages of practice itself, if you look on the back of this handout, <coughs> begins uh, with a, de- a description of a person who has faith in the in the Tathagata, faith in the Buddha. And so, uh, some kind of faith, some kind of trust or confidence in something uh, uh, is required to really be able to step onto the path of practice in order to do something that's different than your business as usual, to change what you're doing and engage in a practice, to follow a path. You have to have some confidence in something, some feeling this is worthwhile doing. And um, how you understand the word faith might be very individualistic, but and, um, you know, here I've translated the word sada as faith. Uh, And then the example given is that of someone becoming a renunciant, and um, the um, I think back in the ancient times, in time this time, there were very little options for someone who wanted to engage full time or quite seriously in the practice of uh, spiritual practice, spiritual discipline. If you stayed in the structure of the times, you know, in your doing your dharma, your duty uh, of your caste and of your profession, <clears throat> you had to have family, you had to work, you had to do all this stuff, you had to pay taxes. There were a lot of things you had to do that made you pretty busy. It was pretty hard. I mean, to have the luck, even nowadays, to have, uh, it's hard, to have the luxury to be able to go on a ten-day retreat, as a lot of people can't afford that. It's a big deal to be able to do that. Um, and let alone, you know, to do it much more seriously than that. Uh, It's inconceivable back in 2,500 years ago that there weren't even universities to go to or schools, really. And so let alone the capacity to leave school, leave your family, leave your work, to go to school or to go to university. I mean, even to this day, in places, like, you know, many places in the world, uh, uh, kids are taken out of school. If they're lucky enough to go when they might be eight, nine, ten years old, because they're needed to help work for the family. Uh, I believe that there was very little uh, lux- luxury time, the ability in society to be able to step out enough in society to go to some other kind of situation to pursue spiritual practice, where nowadays there's m- much more opportunity than there ever has been. We live in a very different society. So when, if we need, if we, if we, some people are critical of this renunciant tradition. They're stepping out of society and they're walking society, leaving society behind. It's kind of world-denying world or something. Um, but we're, we're judging it on our terms. And our terms in our society are so radically different from what was possible back then. And, um, and back then, in order to be able to pursue something serious this way, you had to really step out of society. And this is the only way that you could get support for it. Because, you know, he was, you, can't, you couldn't apply for a scholarship you know, I want to go off and do, you know, spend a year doing spiritual research. Oh, I'll give you a grant. There was no grants back then. What there was was people who put food in your alms bowl. And so you'd walk around, and if people were inspired by the, your lifestyle, what you were trying to do, they would feed you. Uh, they would let you sleep. Um, society back then seemed to have a lot, fair amount of respect for renunciant type people, so they seemed to be get fed. And also, it seems like some towns built. Um, Meeting halls for the renunciants, where they'd meet and debate and give their teachings. So this was—they also go to their own little outlets in that time. We don't—we have other options in our society today. Uh, uh, it, you know, it's, you can go—you can go do ten-day retreats, you can get scholarships to go on retreats, you can go on long retreats. You can go to the forest refuge. You can go off and be a monk if you want for a year or two. Back then, you couldn't drop out for a year or two years. Uh, It was very hard to come back in. Even today, in the the modern world, in some Asian countries, if you you drop out of society for a year to do something like monastic life, it's very hard to come back in again. I I was told this very explicitly many times in Japan, that if someone ordained as a monk in Japan, a Buddhist monk, they really were stepping out of uh, the social structure of their family and their society and their family and society uh, were not very welcoming, it made it easy for them to step back in if they decided not to be a monk. Once you stepped out, it's very difficult to come back in again, find a job and all these things. Here in America, you know, you leave your job and I mean, America's kind of been known for its mobility compared to what a lot of countries have. and Even compared to Europe, Europeans are kind of in awe of Americans who will just get up and leave their town or leave their job and start a new job and start a new company and Europeans are much more kind of locked into how things are, and there's a lot less flexibility. So here, there's much more flexibility in, the, in American society for for taking big chunks of time to involve in spiritual practice as a layperson. So the need, the requirement to be able to be renunciant, is not as severe as it used to be back in another time and place. And I think that's a significant uh, point to make. And so as we evaluate the role of monasticism, and the possibilities of practice for lay people, you have to remember that, um, and then we refer back to the Buddha and how he's, how he's teaching a path of practice, that he was teaching in a very different society than we have today. So for him, if, if you have faith and interested in his path, you become a renunciant, primarily. If you, the Buddha was teaching today, would he say that? that option was available for uh, householders. So, Ted said it, that the option was available to householders. Uh, there are examples in the suttas of householders who become enlightened, who practice seriously. There are not a lot of examples. And, um, and, um, and you know, realistically, you know, how many people actually could do it back then, given uh, what life was like? Um, I mean, it's very inspiring that there are people who could do it. But uh, I think the opportunities for that kind of lay practice are very different today than they were back then. I mean, take one example. It takes, you know, if the way you study spiritual teachings is by memorizing some texts and then, remo- and then rereading them, re- reciting them to yourself and considering them and all that, it takes a while just people memorize a text. You have to have some free time to do that. <coughs> Monastics had the time. Someone who's working a full job and raising kids, could they even take the time to memorize a text. If they didn't memorize it, where is it? It's not written down. We don't have to memorize. We don't have to put all that effort. Uh, and, uh, now we just have to have an iPhone. <clears throat> and uh, we can get, you know, all the suttas on our iPhone and pull it up. They're there in Pali and English and French and everything, you know, just in a few pushes of the button. And you're sitting here, and you don't have to go to the library, even, or the bookstore. <clears throat> you know, and they're so accessible now, these teachings. And so now we can read these things <coughs> and study them without having to spend the time memorizing. So and back then, they had to memorize so they could study it. So uh, the argument I'm making is that uh, the, uh, it's, a, it's a very radically different society, and the opportunities for practice are very different today than they were back then. So how we look at these teachings what's being taught back then, I think, needs, needs a little different uh, translation for a modern society. So when the Buddha says renunciant in his time, is that really what's required today? <clears throat> First, I just had a question,
0: because when I was reading it, there's so much repetition. I mean, that, that's a very musical way of... Um and, and whether that was why, you know, that was part of the strategy for being able to remember
1: this. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, some people who feel that the repetition is a way of memorization, it makes it easier, especially you'll find as you read more of these texts that a lot of the same passages we could repeat it over and over again. So it's a lot easier to memorize if you say, oh, I know that already. <clears throat> and also the repetition musical, there's a rhythm to it sometimes that goes in, in, involved in it. Also, in an oral culture, <clears throat> the rhythm, the language, the repetition, it's not only appreciated for help in memorization, but it also helps its impact on their audience. People listen in a different way. You know, and they're listening different way and pulled into it in a different way. And you see that, to me, even in the modern, modern world. You see um, <clears throat> that uh, certain, uh, for example, Christian preachers really use language and repetition as a really way of having an impact on what they're saying. Uh, In a way that you know someone else might just have you know preach in the prose, whereas some people teach in poetry, and the different effect it has on people. So then we have these stages, (coughs) and um, and you know we only have 15 minutes left, and I'm wondering about these last 15 minutes. The primary hope I had in teaching this is today was to provide enough context and questions and for you so that you could go back and read it again, maybe a number of times, and it comes more alive for you, it becomes your own. So maybe we have done, done a lot of that already. There's more I could say for sure, and we can go through this more mm. in more detail. There's a lot of material here that can be covered. But perhaps the primary motivation I had has been fulfilled. And uh, since we have 15 minutes left, Perhaps it would be useful to uh, step back and ask you if you have any questions or concerns that you'd like to bring up at this point, Ardith?
0: <coughs> I mean, we know that this king's son ended up killing him. Is there any historical record? I mean, what happened? I mean, and then and then his son right killed him. Which, right?
1: No, no. I mean, I mean, the, the, uh, it was four generations of killers.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: And then apparently the people just got tired of these. Uh, father killing kings. So but then they, they, they just got rid of him and installed a new king, a new family, brought a new family in. I mean,
0: it's incredibly tragic. This whole
1: yes. Now, it's interesting, the time of the, uh, we're at the end of the Buddha's lifetime <clears throat> and um, and there's all this war, this Sajit Sattva's there killing war, he's killing his father and he, he tries to f- uh, fight another kingdom, the Kosala kingdom. They have a truce. But then uh, in the last year or so of the Buddha's life, King Pasenadi, the king of, of, um, of Kosala, he's usurped by one of his ministers. And he ends up being sent in exile and dies in exile. And the Buddha, you know, so the, 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 the world the Buddha knew uh, at the end of his life, the world the Buddha knew during his lifetime was in radical change near the end of his life. The Buddha saw in some sense a disintegration, the, the, the collapse of the, you know, kind of the the birth, the death of a certain era, and the kind of the birth of a new era that he didn't really see get fully born. He just saw that tumultuous times that he was kind of. And when you see the you know, the image often we have of the Buddha is this guy is very peaceful, serene, a little bit removed from the currents of, of the world, but the world around him was on fire, seemingly. And he was connected to the fire because he knew the characters.
0: Um, because the Buddha's teachings weren't written down until after his death, he had the monastic community uh, that, that lived with him were not studying suttas. Were they studying anything else? I mean, I guess the, the question is sort of leading in in a way I'm just... There's a heartfelt quality of of practice that's different from studying suttas. and And I always question for myself, is there a benefit to to studying you know this sutta or that sutta or this teaching or that teaching? what what kind of heartfelt you know what 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 kind of truth does it bring to my own practice? Um, but I'm sort of curious about what the monks would have been doing. During the Buddhist time, were they studying any other texts, or were they just listening to his teachings and and internalizing them? And
1: so I, I, the question is, is they were studying anything non-Buddhist? Um, I don't know if I, we don't know evidence of that. I mean, some of them some of them were uh, were very involved in other spiritual traditions before they became Buddhist monks or nuns, and um, and so you know people converted from like some of these others. There were giants who became Buddhists. They were. Uh, Students of Makali who became Buddhists, you know, Ajita became Buddhists. So they were deeply steeped in other traditions. And probably there were people who went around searching and studying different traditions. They were debating and learning from each other. But th- there's no evidence, as, I, as far as I know, of Buddhist monks who were told, you should go study these different traditions and learn about them. Uh, mostly they were busy either studying their own tradition or they were um, doing more you know, practice or teaching. In the in the we in the West sometimes have a very sharp divide between between the idea of spiritual practice and study and reading in the, this early tradition there was, there was that sharp divide the wasn't there and that uh, they didn't study books but certainly they, they memorized there was a big big aspect of what Buddhist monks did was memorization and you have stories where the Buddha asks uh, uh, or, the monks you have stories in the sutras where uh, Buddha and various monks are concerned about the, Having memorized text remember them memorize them accurately uh, I've forgotten it can you please tell me you know, remind me what this that discourse is so I can memorize it again um, because that's the only way that they could know these texts and if the only way you can know the text then you could uh, you could be challenged by it you can reflect on it you could question it you can kind of let it seep in deep more deeply you can learn from it you could uh, and so study was a very important part of the overall enterprise overall approach of of uh, engaging in practice itself. The two weren't separated so much.
0: I was wondering if you wanted to say a few words about one of these steps that I've never heard of before, um, creating mind-made body.
1: Um, I don't know anything about it except you know except a little bit you know you see it occasionally in the text uh it's it's not a very prominent thing in the text these kinds of uh, psychic uh, powers or stuff um, they do kind of creep in here and there and if if it was part of the tradition it was a very very minor part of the tradition most uh, all the teachers i studied with um, either negate them as being not being real or say don't pay any attention to that it's not important it's dangerous to be involved in it don't do it i know of no one who's practiced it or, you know, teach it or anything like that. And then the question is, what is it? What's going on? All these things. And some of them are kind of uh, um, like, you know, one of the psychic powers is being able to touch the moon and the sun, like with your hand, I think it says. And um, so let's take that as an example. Let's get it right. Um, He flies cross-legged through the sky like a bird with wings. He even touches and strokes with his hand the sun and the moon, mighty and powerful as they are." What does that mean? So, stroking the sun and the moon with your hand has a psychic power. Is that literally true? That somehow if you develop these concentration powers that you're able to kind of just, kind of, I don't know, stretch out your arm and just touch the moon or fly up to the moon or the sun you know, or just uh, teleport, you know, to the sun you just kind of like my sun, come back. Uh, or is it to be understood symbolically? Is it to be understood as visions? You know, uh, these are these are experiences happening in deep meditation. A deep meditative mind is capable of very creative imagination, visions, powerful visions. And uh, there are people who you do guided meditation, for example, who use the capacity of the mind to create visions for purposes of healing, and all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, a concentrated mind is one that's also very suggestible. So they use it sometimes in hypnotherapy. And so, what is this meaning, to to touch the moon and the sun? And perhaps there is a vision, perhaps there's a kind of imaginary thing, where the sun and the moon are seen as these powerful entities, almost like gods in their own right. And perhaps there's a kind of vision, touching them. and maybe, the, maybe Or maybe it's symbolic. It says here that they're powerful and mighty. Maybe it's indicating that when you're in deep states of concentration, that uh, the power and the strength of the mind is such that it can stand up against the power and the strength of the great sun and the moon, these great deities of the time. So it has more symbolic meaning. That you feel you, your own mind is so bright and shiny that it can stand up against the brightness of the sun. So how do we understand that? And I said, well, go on, on, on and on about this, because then how do we understand this thing about the mind made body? <clears throat> It's something, certainly something that's being talked about in the context of deep meditation, the fourth jhana. And is it, is it something that's literally true? Or is it something which is part of a vision, dream-like vision that can happen in meditation, where you can kind of imagine mm-hmm. you know, different bodies being created and some of you, there's an active imagination rather than something that's actually real. Um, yes. Oh, you can pass the mic down here, please?
0: I know this practice is actually practiced more in the Tibetan tradition. And if you read Alexandra, David Neal, if you read um, the background of her practice, she did this for a while and um, the, her, her mind made body started attacking her. So she stopped the practice. She didn't find it useful.
1: Good for her. <laughs> <clears throat> but, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm such a skeptic about these things. So even that, you know, uh, I mean, the human mind is... So uh, tremendously capable of very powerful visions and, and imagine, acts of imagination, that we see things that uh, we think are really there. That, uh, so I can imagine her having uh, have such a powerful imagination, thinking there's a real body coming and attacking me. But it's really, it's just a, a product of their own imagination. Um, uh, unstable minds are capable of this. Um, the um, minds that are unstable for a variety of different reasons. Uh, concentrated minds are capable of this. Minds that are very afraid are capable of this. <clears throat> I remember a friend of mine who was um, taking the bus from, I think, Kathmandu down to India. And um, it's quite something to take the bus and then there's windy mountainous Himalayan roads, these deep gorges in the side of the road. And um, the bus is careening around the corners, passing cars in the curves. And it's passing a car in the curve, and you so you you're looking over the railing on the side, and you see the carcasses of dead buses below. You know, I'm in a bus, I'm passing in a curve, and this bus is down there. This is not. So, <coughs> it can, so this friend of mine was dr- taking one of these buses and had this experience. And she was, uh, he, he was petrified. <coughs> and uh, he was holding on for dear life. You know, his knuckles were white on the railing in front of the seat. And, um, and in that fear, <coughs> Avalokiteshvara appeared in the seat next to him. It's okay. And he relaxed. He never really believed that the Avalokiteshvara appeared. Like there's some, some external deity that came, you know. And, but there's, you know, the, the, in times of crisis, the mind will make imagery. will do something to try to create and make itself safe. And that came as that meant that, that other capacity of the mind, which is not necessarily logical or rational, kicked in as something that would uh, make a difference for him. Uh, there's many examples of how the mind can create powerful visions and then and, and, you know, and then it's easy to see how someone would believe it. So to hear the story, I mean I apologize if this goes against your views or something of beliefs, but I would have serious doubts whether that was real beyond, beyond a very powerful. I believe there's practices that she was doing, but you know the reality of those experiences and what they are. That's a whole other exp- a whole other question. What was the intent of the practice? Like, I mean, it was a very specific practice, and that was the actual intent of the practice. Was great. For this yeah, right. So, so, enough, enough, enough. Not enough. useful. Yeah. Not useful. Not useful. <coughs> that's the message I get too. So, um, so anyway, that's um, one response to the question in my main bodies. So, you know, what is it? Where does it fit in? And why is it here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, so one interpretation that some people have is that it just kind of became became or was part of the Indian kind of spiritual, mystical, mystics mystical environment, this kinds of stuff. And um, it in you know, order for propaganda purposes, uh, it was really essential the Buddhists show that they had this too. you know, because there are other religions people are claiming this kinds of stuff. And if the Buddhists don't have that kind of magic, then mustn't Buddhists aren't up to snuff. <clears throat> so it was kind of like, inserted that. You know, we, we got it, too. But who knows? I don't know. I really don't know about about this stuff, but um, I was hoping no one was going to bring it up. So a I have It's all funny. Is it on? I, I have an is- historical question. Why did uh, why do you think Jainism? survived in India when Buddhism um, perished? I don't know the answer to that. I know that one um, theory has been that that Buddhism became... uh, uh, that Jainism was better integrated with the laity. And Buddhism became more and more monastic tradition in India. And in terms of, uh, and there was lay support for it, but they weren't like particularly like lay Buddhists per se. They were just Indians who supported any ascetic that came along. There were some more oriented towards the Buddhists, but it was kind of like all kind of a mix, a religious mix of the time. And so the Bo- the Buddhist tradition was mostly monastic, and became kind of isolated or from a popular support system. So when the Muslims came into India, the the uh, in the 1200s, 1300s, uh, they con- came in and conquered the Mongols came in, uh, they, um, uh, they killed all the monks who stayed monastic and they destroyed all the monasteries. And so nothing was left. But there was no lay tradition to preserve the religion. Whereas in the Jains, um, there was a much stronger uh, lay, apparently Jain, community. And so I don't know if they killed the Jain monks, but they, um, uh, there was a lay community that still continued. There wasn't, that, there wasn't also maybe that sharp divide between monastic and lay as there is in Buddhism so that it could continue that way perhaps much longer. Another theory has been that the Buddhism was mostly centered in northern India and the Jains were mostly in southern India and uh, the Mongols mostly came to northern India. Great, thank you. <coughs>
2: um, I'm kind of um, interested in the order of the, of the stages Um, it just strikes me as a little odd or um, so like the first two seem pretty hard pretty hard to do yeah Um, and then ethically you would think I don't know it seems like living ethically would be something you would do before these two stages um, Mm mm-hmm
1: it's a little bit arbitrary, and and uh, I think that there are many stage descriptions of stages of practice that Buddhism has come up with, <clears throat> and uh, there are people who follow the stages in sequential order, and there are people who um, follow it backwards and upside down and jump around different stages at different times. So there's no fixed order that has to be. But uh, if a person was going to put together a systematic program for themselves, this is one approach, is to go through it this way. Um, the question the king had for the Buddha was the fruits of a renunciant life. So the Buddha is now describing someone becoming a renunciant. So that's, that has to be the deal. It isn't, it isn't necessarily meant to be a comprehensive description of what the Buddha taught, uh, but in response to the king's question, he's going to talk about renunciation. So someone has to become a renunciant. and what, that's a big, It is a big step. And so you don't do it without some kind of faith, some kind of trust or confidence. That this is worthwhile to do. And so back in the Buddhist time, you had confidence in the, the Buddha and his teaching. And um, and uh, some people maybe it took years before they made that step. They hung out, were around, they were checking it all out. Some people were inspired in one day. Wow, this is what I've been waiting all my life for. Something like this. I didn't know what I was waiting for. This is it. And I'm going to become. This is what I'm going to do with my life. So. So in the context of the sutra, that's why this is brought in so quickly. Once you become a renunciant, um, you want to uh, you want to start your practice where it's easiest, <clears throat> and it's easiest uh, to start it where, um, if you look at your physical behavior, you know, it's not so easy to look at your mind. Mind is tricky, but uh, you know it's very tricky to notice. You know I shouldn't be angry with my neighbor. You know, and how does I work and my mind fast enough to see it and all that. But it's, uh, course behavior is easier to notice and, and restrain yourself from doing. So hopefully you'll notice if you're about to punch your neighbor out. And so, and that hopefully you can keep yourself from doing. I mean, much easier than not ha- having animosity ill will towards your neighbor. So you start with course activity. And by that, uh, starting with course activity—not you know, not killing, not stealing, not lying, not sexual misconduct, and so forth—these are all kind of uh, uh, also um, beginning points that are relatively begin. It doesn't require a lot of sophisticated understanding of the mind. It doesn't require developing concentration and mindfulness. So it's one of the easier access entry points for people to start the practice. It also has the benefit of creating a foundation uh, where it makes it easier. The mind gets it's easier for the mind to d- work on the other levels. Because if you live ethically, you have less remorse. If you have less remorse, you have less, less agitation. If you are less agitation, it's easier to feel settled. And for here, um, uh, I think there's an idea that living ethically, um, that one, of, one of the fruits of the practice <coughs> is um, the happiness of blamelessness from being virtuous. So it isn't simply being uh, virtuous so that you don't get agitated. It's also being virtuous enough so you can uh, have available to yourself a certain happiness, a certain sense of joy or bliss, a sense of well-being from your behavior. So in that, uh, so those two things, the lack of agitation agitation and uh, the happiness, then makes it a lot easier to focus on the next stage, which is paying attention to what goes on with your senses. When you see something, when you see your neighbor, then be careful of what you see so you don't doesn't give rise to a lot of anger or a lot of thoughts. If you see um, you know alcohol if you see gold, uh, don't uh, immediately kind of go and grab it and consume it or steal it or something. but you know when you, when you look at something, have a presence of mind that you're not pulled into that world and through reactivity right away. Maybe you have all kinds of deep reactivity within you I mean, in response me the issues mean it could be desire, greed, lust, all kinds of things that come up. Seemingly on its own, but at least when you're out and about in the world, uh, stay present enough and watch, and be careful with what, how you take in the sights of the world, so it doesn't stimulate more of the greed, the hate, and the lust that might be there. So that's the second. It's a lot easier to do that if you're living ethically, because you're you know it's more settled. That's, um, and then when you when you when you're guarding your sense doors, you're already starting to be mindful. And here are the mindful as you read the text. <coughs> um, Being mindful involves being mindful in your daily activities. So it's hard to be mindful in meditation, but you can start by being mindful as you go about your daily activities, walking around, going to the bathroom, different things. So again, the coarser activities have a presence of mind, know what's going on when you're doing it, and train yourself in that way until you become clearly aware of the coarser activities you do. Um, And then contentment. Uh, Contentment involves kind of relatively coarse evaluation of the mind. When you realize, you know, I have 500 elephants and 500 wives. You know, that's a lot. Now lot my people have 500 wives. I think I can be content with that. I can't even get to all of them. <clears throat> so I think I can be content with all those elephants, you know. And I have, you know, I already have a wardrobe full of clothes. I don't need to buy more clothes. I can be content with what I have. You know, I, I, I'm fed well. I have enough food. I don't have to be so concerned about, you know, Spending a lot of money at the best restaurants, or even you know, getting more food all, you know—I can be content with what I have. So, an evaluation that allows us to be content with what we have and to live a life of simplicity is also very helpful for practice. So, um, so that also becomes a foundation for being able to do deeper spiritual work, because you again not cut up with trying to get a lot. You don't have to cut up with miscontent uh, mis- with how things are, what you have, and your situation. So it's a, it's a relatively coarse evaluation which is useful to help you find a certain kind of well-being that comes from being content. Once you uh, have that done, that, done the work that allows you to do that, then, um, then, you have then only then, according to these stages, do you address your own mind. <coughs> and, um, and the first thing it suggests is you look at how difficult it is for your mind to be present. Because it's hard to have the mind be present and concentrated, so you look at what makes it difficult. And, uh, and the primary things are the five hindrances. So you study those. The text, the this, this sutra, for example, those of you who haven't read it yet, has some really beautiful, uses really beautiful imagery as similes and analogies for uh, different teachings it's gonna do. And if, if, you go, if you go back to read it, really try to go in and read the imagery, like of the hindrances, and try to get a sense of the, what's being taught and, and the, how it gets reinforced by the images and similes that are being used. And then once you deal with the forces that keep you distracted and when you develop contentment and happiness and deal with the force of distraction, then it becomes a lot easier to cultivate concentration, the concentrated mind. I'm sorry that we're running late. Please go, anybody who wants to go. Um, And then uh, once you're concentrated and still, it's a lot easier to see clearly what's there. Concentrated mind is a stable mind. A stable mind can actually study what's there in a more deeper, clearer way. And uh, so that's the insight. And then when you have a deep insight, that allows you to see uh, kind of the primary places of holding, of attachment, that goes, how the mind works in that deeper kind of places of attachment. <clears throat> and then you can... Uh, the mind also is concentrated as a very soft and malleable, wieldy, workable mind. You know, many minds, people's minds are very tight, locked in, uh, preoccupied, tense, much more than people realize. And a concentrated mind is one that gets really soft and malleable and flexible. And it's a lot easier to let go if the mind is soft and relaxed. So the deepest work of enlightenment, of awakening, happens when the mind is deeply, deeply relaxed to make that possible. So in that sense, many of these are kind of sequential and one is a foundation for the next one and they build over time. Make some sense? Okay, so we're 10 minutes over and um, I apologize, we didn't really look at that clear, clearly at the text. Um, I hope that uh, this gives you a lot of background and some basic idea of the text, That, uh, and I hope that you'll go and, <coughs> go and uh, take a good look at it yourself now if you haven't yet, or if you have, go back and look through it again and um, consider the perspective, the approach that you have. Consider there's many ways of reading the text. Um, and um, many lessons to learn from the text. It would be very nice if you can think that there's actually three or four different samanaphala suttas. There's not just one. And you can read it from these different angles and perspectives. And, um, and so the text becomes a little more alive for you. And a text not just alive, but one that's useful for you in your life. And uh, I don't teach these kinds of stuff, and I'm not interested in this, unless in some way or other it's going to be useful for people. But what's useful about it is not inherent in the text as much as it is how you engage in the text. And really usefulness has a lot to do with what you do with it, not what's there. And even something which is lousy can be useful if you figure out a useful way to engage and question it and reflect on it and different things. So um, with that, I leave the responsibility to you. So thank you very much.